Hello and welcome to Next Generation Saints. I'm your host, Nick Coons. So, I know it's been a little while since I've uploaded anything. I've actually been very busy with Biola University. I'm actually a student there and at work. But I promise I'll get everything right back on track as things are getting a little easier on the schedule. So, now I'm going to be doing an episode today from Give Me an Answer with Pastor Cliff Connectly. This is going to be talking about suffering. What is the problem of suffering? What is the problem of evil? Why is there a major problem of this? If you haven't already, go ahead and like and subscribe to this podcast. Wherever you may listen or watch podcasts nowadays, I'm mostly on Spotify, so give it a shot. But wherever you may listen to this podcast, go for it. So, without further ado, please enjoy the program. Pretty difficult situation, especially in light of the fact that there are no social services. This is a nomadic people. And there's real poverty. So what you have in Leviticus is you've got God not setting them perfect, but he's pulling them out of a lot of grotesque habits. And that's why he deals with slavery in Exodus and Leviticus the way he does. He doesn't come up and say everybody who's a slave is now free. Instead, he says, if you kidnap somebody, and if you're caught with them still in your possession, or if you sell them, you're to be executed. See, that, that's Exodus chapter 21, verse 16. And that just really honks me off when some anthro professor starts dumping on the Old Testament because of slavery. He doesn't have the faintest idea what he's talking about. What's happening there is God is calling a people who abused each other with slavery. He's beginning to limit what they can do, and he's beginning to drag them right out of slavery. Oh, well, come on, the Apostle Paul, he talked about slavery. Yeah, and who do you think wrote the letter of Philemon? Who do you think wrote, hey, Philemon? I was in a prison cell with a buddy of yours. Well, not exactly a buddy, he was your former slave. He's a runaway slave, Philemon. But he came to faith in Christ, and I'm sending him back to you, no longer as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. Well, come on, Paul, in Colossians and Ephesians, why didn't you just come out and say slavery's wrong? Well, I'll tell you why, because over 50% of the Roman Empire were slaves. Doctors were slaves, business people were slaves. You was like an indentured servant. Now, were there some abuses of slavery in the Roman Empire? Yes, there were. But I can promise you, slavery in the Roman Empire was totally different from slavery in the United States. And I was speaking at Cornell University up in Ithaca, New York, and this issue came up of Leviticus and slavery. All of a sudden, an African-American woman stepped out of the crowd, a brilliant woman. And she looks, she looks in the faces of these white guys who were just dumping on me over the slavery issue, and she said, you guys haven't studied much. This American chattel slavery is never given any credence in the Bible. But what the Apostle Paul had to work through was, in light of the fact that slavery in the Roman Empire was more an indentured servanthood, what was God calling Christians to do? Not to be Spartacus, not to lead a slave revolt against the Roman Empire, but to work on the human heart so that slavery obviously could never occur because I would never treat a person that way 
because I've allowed Christ to live within me to change my heart. So I think that's obviously the strategy of the Apostle Paul. Not, all right, we're a bunch of Spartacuses, let's go out and kill all the slave holders in the Roman Empire. But no, we're going to change the human heart by the grace of God, by the Holy Spirit, and then we're going to encourage people to realize, slavery? Are you kidding me? He's my brother. She's my sister. Slave? That's absurd. I'd like to know what your position, like, specifically on, like, uh, the problem of evil is. Like, not, well, okay, not the problem of evil, but the the problem of suffering. Yeah. Like, uh, how do we, how do we chalk that up? I've always, personally, what made me convert out of Christianity and become Buddhist was, uh, I, uh, I was orphaned pretty early. Uh, Sorry. Life. But, yeah, like, uh, but it hurts. <laughs> but, like, uh... I couldn't find a way to to jive the existence of a like infinitely loving, right. infinitely knowing, yep. and omnipresent creator yep. with um, the existence of what what specifically what got me was reading in Leviticus right. the, the the portion about like thou I, I don't know I don't think it's one of the thou it's not introduced as thou shalt right. I don't remember but it's something yep. like thou shalt like uh, defend the widow and the orphan. It made me think, well, why does God create the conditions for widows and orphans to exist in the first place? Um, where's this infinite love? If free will leads to a suffering, why is this infinitely loving God creating suffering? I was wondering what yeah. you thought of this. Why am I convinced that you should move your fate from Buddha and Buddhism to Jesus Christ? Because of the problem of suffering. What is this typical statue of Buddha? What's he doing? Cross legs, cross the arms, a little smile on his face, right? All right, what's the ultimate symbol of Jesus Christ? What are some of you wearing around your necks? A cross. Hmm. Do you think, confronted by the problem of suffering, that it would be more wise to trust a guy who's dying an excruciatingly painful death on a cross than it would be to trust a guy who's sitting cross-legged with a little smile on his face. He was, like, ridiculously emaciated, came very close to death, Um, experienced great suffering. I feel like that's a bit of, like, jumping away from the problem of um, what we're talking about is, like, why does suffering exist? What is the nature of suffering? Yeah. In Buddhism, we believe it's just inherent in our being caught up in samsara and the cycle of death and rebirth. I don't interpret that literally, but I believe it refers to the way in which we're one person. I'm Patrick the student now. One day I'll be Patrick the father. We die, one person dies, something right. arises. Interpreted from the, the context of anatta, no self. Um, we have this explanation for suffering, that it's simply, it's just baked into our desire-ridden world. Um, uh-huh. What you've talked about is, um, you know, who has the rhetorical ground to speak of suffering? But we're talking about universe, it's the same sort of argument as like, I can't say, like, I couldn't say slavery is bad because I'm a white guy. Uh-huh. I feel like any of us can make the point that slavery is bad. Yeah. Um, any of us can see such a thing if we take a certain set of, uh, you know, if we take a certain set of premises, we can arrive at that conclusion. Um, so, what say you of universal 
uh, you know, the universal question of suffering. Right. So Buddha says the way you deal with suffering is by cutting off your desires. We gotta have desires. You're here as a student because you have some desires to get a good education. Bravo! If you didn't have desire, you wouldn't be here. You have a desire for friendship. Bravo! So this whole idea that the way you deal with the suffering of life is to cut off your desires. No! Jesus points out the challenge is to learn to distinguish between good desires and bad desires. Desire to know God. Search for God. Read the Gospels. Check out Jesus Christ. Search for truth. Have a desire. That is good. Lust, greed, racism. You might have a cultural prejudice lead to that. No, not a good desire. Don't follow it. Date rape. No, not a good desire. Don't follow it. So we all have desires. So the challenge in dealing with suffering is not, oh my goodness, my, my nephew has spina bifida, so I'm just going to cut off my desires for his healing. No, I want my nephew to be healed. Our argument isn't against this, like uh, desire interpreted in its broadest sense as like as it can be interpreted in the English language, what that word means. Right. It's more against grasping attachment. We're like we love love without attachment essentially is the idea. The yeah. understanding that all things are transient and like will come to die. Um, and appreciating them despite that fact. Um, without grabbing on saying, yeah. don't change, don't change. Yeah. Allowing it to move. Um, yeah. Okay. I wanted to point out that little semantic. You bet. Bit there. Okay, fair enough. A big thing, like, I like thinking about different types of religions, uh, but like in Islam, like a big thing, part of our religion is yes. there's, there's one true and only single entity of God. Um, some question I usually like ask a lot of my Christian friends is like, yeah. can you explain to me like the like the Holy Trinity, like how the how like because in Christianity you guys believe there's only one power, God, one person, right? So like, how does the whole like Trinity work if there's only one? The Trinity, very mysterious in the Christian faith. The Trinity works as the Father, Son, Holy Spirit loving each other throughout time, throughout eternity. That ushers in a type of understanding of community and love. We were built for community because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been loving each other throughout time. Then the Son, Jesus Christ, punched a hole through eternity into space and time, died on a cross for us, showing us that he loves us unconditionally. In Islam, I respect it very much, but it, you know, Allah is untouchable. There is no immense love connection unconditional love. It's more mercy and submission, which is beautiful in and of itself. But showing the Trinity in that way, that explains why we are built and made for love. One of the reasons I respect Muhammad is because of one of the five pillars being give alms to the poor. Magnificent. That's exactly what Jesus taught. But the reason that I cannot be Muslim is because Muhammad lived from 570 to 632, about which means he obviously never met Jesus. Now, throughout the Quran we read, Jesus is a good teacher, but he is not God. The eyewitnesses who saw Jesus, who heard Jesus, insisted Jesus claimed to be God. So the respect that Muhammad had for Jesus as a good teacher is not an option. 
he's either a blasphemer because he claimed to be God or else he's who he claimed to be. So it's a philosophical problem that I have with Muhammad because he has such respect for Jesus, but obviously he lived 570 to 632, so he never met Jesus. He's born 500 years after the fact. But the eyewitnesses said, no, Jesus claimed to be God. Discounting, like, we also believe that Jesus was a prophet, prophet in Islam. Sure. So it's like, I feel like the, the two weights between, a, like, a teacher and a prophet are like, there's a pretty big disconnect there. All right. Like, I feel like um, through prophecies or, like, uh, Jesus prophesizing in Islam was more of, like, um, I don't know how to describe it. It's like, imagine, like, when you go to church and there's a sermon, there's, like, people actually teaching you about this religion. And then, like, when you see a religion slowly being changed and, like, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to disrespect your religion by saying, like, it was changed or anything like that. Okay. But, Put it like, out there from, like, my, like from, like, my beliefs, obviously. Yeah. But, um, so it's, like, from those changings, it's, like, we know, or I'm not going to say we know, but our original thoughts of, like, what Christianity was delivered, because in my religion, we have to respect Christianity. Yeah. In my religion, we have to believe that Christianity was still the word of God. There's yep. no doubt about that. It's yep. just that over time, like you just said, there's no real sayings that Jesus said, like, I am the Father, or Jesus said that I was somebody else. Like, nobody really knows exactly what Jesus was saying. And that, that loss in translation over time is what where we find those two divides. I respect what you're saying about, like, them, like, Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi May peace be upon him. Mm -hmm. I like how you're trying to compare the two as, like, a more of a relationship. Like, he was more of a teacher that Prophet Muhammad kind of like studied to bring forth Islam. But it's also discounting the fact that like, Prophet Muhammad didn't create Islam, if that makes sense. So like, it was God's words that were given to Prophet okay. Muhammad so he didn't create Islam. So when I talk to Muslims, they say, hey, you're a man of the book. You should understand this. Not that we're better than people who don't believe in the Quran or the Bible. But there is some type of connection there that I'm a little bit confused about. But Surah 4 talks about people of the book and how if you study the book, the Bible, you will be saved. But then there's a contradiction later on that talks about how, no, you cannot just study the Bible and be saved. You have to go through the Quran. You have to go through Muhammad to get to Allah. So I see an internal contradiction there. That's my problem. Then to your point, absolutely, it gets ambiguous in terms of Jesus' claims. The same point, I would say, though, it actually is pretty clear and lucid. He doesn't outright say, I am God. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He has seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. I am would absolutely be directly under, everybody understood that as I am God. He accepts worship. When people, whenever people worship him, he accepts it. He forgives sin, both of those showing that he is claiming to be God. He ultimately dies on the cross and what do we get? King of the Jews, relating that they were worshiping him as God. So his character and his claims, I think, are undoubtedly there. Okay, now here's my challenge with your statement about the New Testament, the Bible's been changed. Okay? Today for the New Testament, in English, we have over 5,300 Greek manuscripts or pieces of manuscripts. Are there variants? in those 5,200 Greek manuscripts. Yes, there are, thousands of them. But those variants are so small that they don't change anything in terms of the message. I mean, I'll let it know. All right, okay. well, you will find out about this in a religion class here at UNC Chapel Hill. Now, I ask you to do something to study Islam. 
I ask you to look up the guy, Zaid bin Thabit, hired by the third caliph. And what did he have to do? He sent out the message. Please destroy all the copies of the Quran that disagree with this one copy. Quran, right? It was, when it was given Prophet Muhammad وسلم, it was never so much written down, right? It was Prophet Muhammad وسلم, would hold khutbahs like sermons like this, right? And he would give the word of God, yeah. right? And there's people that were dedicated in Islam to, to the point where they memorized everything yes. word for word, word for word, word for word. And Zaid bin Thabit wrote it. Okay, he it. wrote it. Yeah. So, but th that then we get the the one true like statement of like this is we all can agree that all of everything that we memorize and learn it lines up with this one this one piece, right? But now you're saying that like there were so many Ibn Batavit like wrote different types and others but it's copied not. it, and there were differences between the different manuscripts. Okay, exactly. But like and our then the belief third is third caliph okay. told hired Zaid bin Thabit to make sure that all the other copies were destroyed and that this one the original, copy, yes. This one copy, one version of the Quran was preserved. The original, yes. Okay, sir, you brought up the issue I know, of I, manuscript reliability, okay? Yeah, I mean, that's fine. So I'm, you know, if you want to bring that up, we'll jump into that, but I don't know how far you want to go down know, that I got path. Class, but no, I, I respect the conversation. Thank you. You bet, man. Good to see you, buddy. Sure, yeah. How's it going? You too, have a great one. Yes, sir. Like some people claim that like, he created humans to study imperfection, but if he's all-knowing, why would he do that? If you read Luc Ferry, it's a bestseller, he's a French atheist. He said that the doctrine of all our people are created in the image of God, no matter race, socioeconomic standing, no matter gender. That took over the Roman Empire and the entire known world, and that changed the value of human beings, brought peace and equality. So why do I say that? I say that because in Genesis 1 and 2, you get all are created in the image of God. Everything was perfect in the garden, so God did not create evil. He did not create sin. He gave us a free will, and ultimately we decided to bring entropy, to bring brokenness from a cosmic, sociological, psychological level into this world. So when you get in the book of Isaiah, for example, a lot of atheists will go there when, when I'm debating with them. And they'll say, clearly it says that God created evil. But when you get created evil there, it's actually talking about God judging in a way that he takes a people group that's evil, judges them, and yes, they are destroyed. In our secular humanistic culture, we're like, whoa, wait a second. No one should be judged. No one should be destroyed. God, though, gives grace, but then says, ultimately, judgment will come. Couldn't you argue that humans never really had a chance to start with since God casted Satan to the same world that we're at, knowing that we would interact or Adam and Eve would interact with Satan influencing them? So what was the point? The devil cannot make me do anything. The devil can tempt me, but I am responsible for my decisions. And the whole idea, the devil made me do it, is a lie. You have a free will. You have a rational mind. You have to make your own decisions. Same for me. Now, secondly, you look at the Garden of Eden. No imperfections. A spiritual being named Lucifer, who's rebelled against God, comes and tempts Adam and Eve. 
but then they give in to that temptation. Uh, can you expand more on like what you're talking about where like morality isn't a social construct? I, I've always kind of thought that it is a social construct. Like we get good and bad, not from God, but from like the people that we interact with and yeah. Okay, so morality is a social construct. Ultimately, it's simply a determination by those who are around you, and then perhaps you get together and decide what is right or wrong. But it's still fully subjective, because it could be the powerful determining it within that social construct, or it could be some, just the hoi polloi, the number of people within it. But we see that get poisoned all the time, right? In communist societies, we saw it with slavery. We saw it in Nazi Germany. There are, is no moral obligation, what Martin Luther King Jr. talks about as a law above the law, it, that we connect with to say, no, you use should, you use ought, you absolutely know what is right and wrong, and live that out. You know, for example, if you are an atheist, and you say, we really should help people, we really should, across the, the world, those in India, for example. As an atheist, why should you do that from an evolutionary perspective or from social construct? It doesn't really make much sense. Like, from an atheist perspective, you can get to the point of saying, we should live good lives, perhaps. But if there is no God working and trying to help those over in India, sacrificing our own resources, perhaps, even for our kids to help them, makes no sense. Why live for human rights from an atheist perspective when all it is is raised tooth and claw, powerful, eating the weak? It makes no sense ultimately. You cannot, it's a huge jump, it's a huge leap of faith to say there is no God, so we should help others across the country from an evolutionary perspective or just because we decide to as a social construct. Assuming God exists, right, why does that necessitate some form of objective morality? What makes that more objective than any other way somebody else formulates their own subjective morality? First of all, the powerful. They define what's right and wrong. King Arthur and his knights. Second option, majority opinion. Democracy. The majority opinion wins. So the majority defines right and wrong. Third option, the individual. The individual defines what's right and wrong. But all three of those options mean that morality is relative. It's kind of like, do you prefer beans or broccoli? Just a taste. Well, stealing or respecting a person's property. Just a taste, a prejudice. Nothing absolute about it. Nothing objectively wrong about stealing just a taste, a taste defined by the powerful, or by the majority, or by the individual. But there is a fourth option, and that is that there's a being who is eternal, who pre-exists the human mind, who creates and defines, whose character defines what good is, what justice is. Then he gives you and me a conscience, and with that conscience and the rational mind, we can really understand justice, goodness, kindness. And my observation is, the fourth option is the true one. Why? Because every moral relativist friend of mine, if they get hurt badly enough, look into the face of the person who hurt them and say, you should not have done that. And when they use the word should, they're appealing to a standard outside of culture, outside of the powerful, 
outside of the majority, outside of their individual opinion, and they're saying, come on, buddy, wake up and smell the coffee. You should not have treated me that way. I would say everybody has the capacity to reason, but I don't necessarily think that even if you strongly feel a certain way, that everybody throughout human history feels the same way. For example, no, we I, don't. You're right. Yeah. So, like Nazi Germany, I think is a good example. Everybody yeah. likes to think if we were put in that those circumstances, right, we would do the right thing and speak up against it. But the reality is that was a country with millions of people. And a sizable majority went along with I it agree or with you. turned a blind eye. That's so right. There seems to suggest then yes. that there are some either factors that are social, individual personal relationships, yes. Yes. biological elements, yep. evolutionary incentives. Yep. So I guess how do you kind of square that then? Free will. I can allow the pressure of my society to push me into racism, stealing. I mean, I got some buddies who are really good on Wall Street. And they steal. And guess what? There's nothing wrong with stealing if you don't get caught. And of course, it's just stupid people who get caught. But the rest of us who are really sharp, we can steal white collar crime, no problem. And because we don't get caught, there's nothing wrong. Sir, you can rationalize just about anything you want to. On a day-to-day -day basis, we tend to assume that we can trust our senses. But if you're looking at this philosophically, I'm trying to figure out how you objectively determine when your senses are telling the truth and when they're lying to you. Because it seems like you're looking for evidence. So, evidence. How do you do that? I've experienced love. And when a materialist tells me love is just a biological reaction, it's just a sex drive, or it's just a drive to preserve the genetic pool, I have to say, I'm sorry. I've received people's love, mean by that, sacrificing for me, giving to me, even though I didn't deserve it. Like, I don't deserve to be forgiven, and yet they still forgive me. That's my wife right there. She has forgiven me when I don't deserve to be forgiven. All right? Now that's love. Love is not, oh, what can I get out of it? No, that's not love, that's self-absorption. Love is, what can I give? How can I serve you? What do I need to sacrifice to help your life be better? Well, I've experienced that. I, I hope every one of you have. And I hope that that then wakes you up to reality, which is there is more to us than just chemicals going off in our brains. Um, are you familiar with like Pascal's Wager? Yeah, I love yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, So I love Pascal's Wager. I would say Wager. this is kind of a similar Pascal's Wager, but for being able to trust our senses and perceptions, right? So like we can trust our senses and perceptions or we cannot, and they can either be accurate or they cannot be, right? Yeah. So I would say it always makes sense to lean on the side of trusting our perception because the consequences of not trusting our perception and having them based real are much greater than the opposite, right? Very good. Now, what do you lose if you don't put your faith in Christ? Yeah. You lose everything. What do you lose if you do put your faith in Christ and he's wrong? You lose a little hum human autonomy, but the virtues that Christ taught make your life so yeah. beautiful it's well worth it. Can I ask you some questions about Sure, go ahead. I don't think you can force yourself to believe something. So, for example, I could follow the teachings of Christ as, like, indistinguishable from you as a Christian, yes, right? Yes, But I still, in my heart of hearts, would not believe that God exists, and assuming there's some sort of judgment, then 
God, presuming he's all-powerful and almighty, would be able to see through that. Yep. And it seems weird to me, then, that I would be able to go to heaven and somebody maybe who uh, acted goodly because they truly believed um, in what they were doing, but maybe weren't a follower of Christ, could be sent to uh, damnation. According to Christ and Pascal, my problem is not intellectual. My problem is moral. My problem is human arrogance and human rebellion. And due to my human arrogance and my human rebellion, I am blinded to all the evidence that God has given me of his existence. I'd like to invite you to Grace Community Church, located at 365 Lukeswood Road in New Canaan, Connecticut. Our services are at 9.30 a.m. and 5.30 p.m. on Sundays. Hope you can join us. back to next generation saints i hope you enjoyed the programming if you haven't already done so please like subscribe to this podcast wherever you may be listening to podcasts around the world and i hope it really blessed you so until next time we meet again may god richly bless you all my dearly beloved